How connected are our homes to our sense of well-being? Do owner-occupiers fare better than renters on the happiness scale? While owning our own home can certainly provide a sense of stability and control over our living environment, it can also come with financial stress and the responsibility of maintaining your property. And once we're on the property ladder, how long do we relax and bask in the glow of our achievement before we set our sights on a higher rung? What role do other factors such as stage of life, income level, location and personal values play in determining whether home ownership or renting is a better fit for an individual's happiness and well-being? We suspect there's so much more to consider than a binary of renters being unhappy and homeowners being happy, and that's what we'll be discussing today. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we've asked a well-being expert to help us better understand the relationship between home ownership and happiness. Dr. Peggy Kern is an associate professor at the Centre for Wellbeing Science within the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education and her resource focuses on understanding, measuring and supporting well-being across the lifespan. She works with schools and workplaces to examine strategies for supporting well-being and bridging gaps between research and practice. And we're really excited about this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us, Peggy. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Hey, I absolutely loved an article back in the Sydney Morning Herald back in February. We'll put a link in the show notes up. And the topic was, the title was, Will Buying a New House Actually Make You Happy and the Science in It? And I, I think it's a really interesting topic, something I've thought about many times. And I guess before we, you know, go into detail about that sort of conversation, how do you think we sort of measure sort of, what's your view on measuring happiness or measuring well-being or wellness or, you know, what's your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that we can actually measure well-being or happiness, Uh Kind of like the two main ways that we can really think about what happiness is. There's there's something called hedonic happiness, which is our felt happiness. So sort of like how how much positive emotions do we feel? So sort of like you know how much do we sort of feel happy, joy, calmness? Sort of that that sort of felt emotion, and versus that negative emotion, so sadness, anxiety, anger. So that's hedonic uh, happiness. And then there's what's called eudaimonic happiness. And that's much more what's known as the good life. And so uh, how much do I uh, have good relationships with other people? How much do I have a sense of meaning in my life, a sense of purpose? How much am I really um, having accomplishing things in my life? And so that's much more sort of this this more holistic sense of the good life. And uh, and and so oftentimes when we think about happiness, we're often thinking about that sort of hedonic, that emotional sense of happiness. But oftentimes what we actually think about that fuller sense of contentment, that's actually the eudaimonic side of happiness that we're actually thinking about. And so oftentimes that, you know, if I only have that, that house. If I have that 
car, if I have this or that, we're actually pursuing that hedonic sense of happiness. But actually what we really want is that more eudaimonic sense of really I've achieved something in my life. I feel a sense of deeper sense of contentment. And that's actually what we really want in our life. So you can see with homeownership, it gets a bit confusing here because there's there's achievement. Obviously, it's it's no mean feat to actually get to the point of owning a home, particularly in this country, right? Um, and it's also tied in with meaningfulness and providing, you know, having your own place and this comfort and shelter and but the emotional side of things as well in terms of your family. Um, so that more of that, and I've used the word emotional probably out of context there in, in, this, in the sense of this discussion, um, because these things contribute to the general sense of overall well-being and you know we have a, f- a place for our family to you know to um, meet to shelter all that sort of stuff but then there's the idea of you know keeping up with the joneses and the idea that you have to can't be satisfied then because the home i've got's not as good as what somebody else has got so i can imagine this whole space particularly around home ownership or just the sense of home whether you own it or not can be quite and even some renters would, would go and they couldn't afford to buy a property as good as they can rent. And so they can go for that more flashy lifestyle for argument's sake. You know what I mean? So it's all complicated, isn't it? Have you actually ever done any specific study on this this space? I haven't done any actual studies on this space, but it's actually exactly what you're saying is that there's a lot of complexity there. And I think that sort of those two sides are actually constantly at interplay with each other and sort of that you know, that that sense of that eudaimonia is actually at work there of sort of like, I've achieved something. I've actually really gotten there. I've actually really worked hard for things. I have this sense of I've really got into the place I've wanted. But intersecting with that is that constant need for approval, that constant sense of sort of that little little dopamine kick that we get in our brain of sort of the there's always something that's better. There's that the grass is always greener on the other side, and we're now and, and there's something called the hedonic tre- treadmill, where there, there there's something where we're never actually happy with what we have, and so we 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 get a home and we're happy for a little bit, but then we see something else, and then we say, well, I would only be happier if I actually had that. That's the hedonic side of things, and so then we we actually start to all of a sudden say, well, now I'm in this home, but. I start to see everything that's wrong with it. And all of a sudden, we're discontent with what we have. And instead of actually really resonating with, I've achieved things, I've really have come to a sense of a place of accomplishment, we start to look at that, well, what am I missing? That's kicking into that hedonic side. And so then all of a sudden, we're we're starting to see everything that's wrong with our place and then we get back to that sense of discontentment and we start comparing ourselves to others. And then we really end up with that sense of discontent and we end up with that unhappiness trap once again. So the hedonic ad- adaptation, is that something yep. that's like wide, like no matter your income, your where you were born, your race, um, yep. it's, it's literally everyone's got the same problems. And no matter where you were born in the world, you would naturally have this hedonic ad- adaptation where no matter what you've got, you're always going to want more. You're always going to be started thinking, what am I missing? Is is You have to basically put in tools to rewire your brain to constantly have that battle, I guess. Yeah. So what what has been, it, it's sort of like this, this hedonic set point. So um, in the same way that if you think about your weight, 
Um, so we kind of have like a weight that we settle at. And so you can diet and you go below your weight, but then oftentimes we come back to that same weight. And if we kind of gain weight, and then you'll actually come back to that weight. So you sort of have a weight set point. In the same same way, we sort of have this happiness sort of set point. And you can do things to make yourself like a lot happier for a period of time. But oftentimes you'll come back to sort of this sort of, some people are just naturally a lot happier than others. And other people are just naturally a lot sort of just dispositionally, they're a lot more pessimistic and kind of sadder than others. And so we tend to, now you can change that set point over time and there are different interventions you can do. So for instance, if you each day you really focus on things like doing meditation, gratitude, really focusing on a lot of exercises to really focus on adding a lot of positivity, heartfelt positivity, not sort of just sort of kind of, you know, there's lots of exercises we can do. Some are more heartfelt than others. Um, But if you really work at it, you can actually change your set point over time, but it takes a lot of effort. It's just like any positive habit that we want to incorporate into our life. We can change our set points, but it takes a lot of work and effort over time. Um, so we can change our set points, but it takes a lot of work and effort. Um, and so what's unsaid there is that probably buying a new home isn't necessarily going to change our set point. Correct. Correct. It's a one, it's a one off. And so if we think about our set points, our set points are sort of well ingrained. A lot of it is due to our temperament, our biology, our life experiences that have really gotten us to our point. And to change that, that takes a lot of, it, it's it's like a habit that we have to change through a lot of work and effort over time. And a one-off experience is not going to change that. And so what happens with a one-off experience is we get a real sort of dopamine kick. It really che- gives us this real, like, this is a great experience, but then we resettle back to our set point very quickly. So we've all got different set points, right? But is a, a set point on the sort of day-to-day feeling of happy versus sad, the joy versus anger, I guess? Or are you saying more the set point in terms of how aspirational you are, how much you you really want to achieve in all areas of life, right? So, you know, the person is then ticking the house, then they're ticking the health, and they're ticking the friends, and they're ticking the community. They ultimately have a much higher drive. Their opinion of when they're going to be happy is when they've ticked lots and lots of boxes versus someone who say, no, I'm happy here. I'm just, I've got my couple of friends. I'm healthy. You know, and so is that where the set point really, you know, you see two different people where they're constantly never enough. They're constantly trying to strive for more. And then someone who's got the ability to say, well, no, I've got everything I need. Um, I'm happy, healthy. I've got shelter. Is that something that's very different for us all? Plus obviously the emotional side. Correct. Correct. So some people are very driven and they're always wanting more. And some people are actually very settled and they don't need much to actually feel very settled in life. And and some people are very positive and optimistic and some people are very pessimistic. And so these are personality characteristics that are actually, this is just part of some of it is biological, some of it is our early experiences in life, and some of it is our adult experiences in life. And so this is sort of these individual differences that we actually experience um, that makes us who we are as people. It's fascinating because 
while you're sort of talking about that, and I'm thinking, you know, one event doesn't um, change the set point. It, it sort of, you know, you enjoy it for a little bit of time, and then you go back to wherever you were in the first place. And if you're the sort of person that's sort of glass half empty, you may be more inclined to be looking at right now what's next because I'm I need to fulfill myself again, fill myself up again, and hopefully get that feeling again. If you're the person who's glass half full, naturally inclined, potentially you might be more inclined to enjoy the satisfaction of what you've achieved thus far, or perhaps your set points lower or whatever. But what about on the negative? I mean, I'm guessing, and, and we talk about this, you know, particularly with higher interest rates, for instance, is the old frog in the pot thing, you know, like it's you throw the frog in the pot of boiling water, supposedly the frog jumps out, Not never seen it happen, but um, but is it you put in a in a tub of, in a pot of cold water and you turn up the the dial on the heat and s- slowly you get a poached frog. Um, with interest rates rising at the moment, for instance, you know we, there's a lot of commentary around. Oh, it's shocking, and the the markets the property market's going to fall off a cliff because people won't buy property because of higher interest rates and all the rest of it. And I'm like, well, actually, ten years ago interest rates were high, and um, we were all used to it, right? So I, I sort of feel like the, the hedonic adaptation must work on the flip side as well. Like things go down and then we get used to it. Does that, does that, is that require our set point to go down or does it require just us to get used to different circumstances? How does it work in the reverse? It works in the reverse the same way. So we get used to things and we just sort of adapt to it. So you know, we can get adapt, we can adapt to it on the positive side, we can adapt to it in the negative side. And sort of the, the, you know, when it goes slowly, we adapt to it. It's when it's that, ins- you know, we get that big jump on things, we adapt, we, we come back down to our set point. It's when it goes slowly, that's when we actually see the change happen. It's, it's in the same thing with the frog, you know, it's when things move slowly to the positive or to the negative that we actually adjust to things. So with our home, so our homes, there's obviously so many different elements that it could feed into that sort of second moment of, I could almost say it feeds into both, right? It could be those moments you spend with your kids at the house or having friends around. If that home is something that gives you lots of positive emotion. Um, and then it could be around the happiness. And then it could also give you lots of different stress. It could be like, I've got to fix these things. I'm worried about my mortgage. I'm, you know, I've got to clean up. I've got to um, constantly entertain, et cetera. So do you think that a lot of people just go in assuming that, you know, they're focusing on the short term, oh, security, stability, what the Joneses are doing, but they're potentially not doing enough critical thinking around how is this home actually going to, the, the cost to benefit, right? The cost is the bigger mortgage, the job, the having to work, the versus the reward, or or maybe just, um, they don't, yeah, do you think that's where people go wrong, I guess, with the pursuit of whether it's a business or money or property or something is they actually don't know what they're giving up to potentially get it. I, I think there there needs to be a real thinking about sort of the pros and the cons on sort of the bigger nature of things. And so oftentimes we think about sort of the short-term gains and sort of like that, this is what it's going to give me. And we don't think about sort of the bigger consequences that come with that. And so one thing that could be really helpful is to think about the short-term gains, the short-term consequences, the long-term gains, and the long-term consequences. And so it's sort of like a pros and cons of both short-term and long-term. And if we actually look at the long-term gains, then we can actually sort of get to all of the benefits that we actually get to get to the home ownership thing. 
And, and that actually overrides a lot of those negatives that we actually see. Um, and that, but we actually have to get out of that short-term thinking. So the short-term thinking actually does lead us to the home ownership, but then it also gets us really stuck in a lot of that negative thinking. But the more that we can have to be moving more towards that longer-term thinking, that actually gets us beyond sort of those hiccups that come with sort of the negatives that we actually experience when we, we get beyond sort of that immediate sort of benefits that we get from the immediate homeowner. It's so fascinating you say that because we talk about that a lot, that buying any property, whether it be as a home or as an investment, is a long-term play. Correct. And you have to be in it for the long term from a financial point of view, we're talking here, um, because that that's just the, the mechanics of the, the, the market, the industry, and, and the costs going in, the costs going out, and all the rest of it. So... But but we know that people make short-term decisions, and I hadn't actually thought about it exactly the way you framed it in that way before, that, that alpha, our dissatisfaction is driven by the fact that we bought, we got into the market for short-term thinking, even though, you know, we think if it takes you nine years to save a deposit, for instance, that it must be long-term thinking, but it still isn't. It's so not. isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I just think that's amazing. The more that we can actually be thinking about, actually, there, you know, and there's there's a tool you could do is the pros and cons list, and actually the short term and long term pros and cons. That that actually moves us beyond sort of those. And again, this moves us from the hedonic to the eudaimonic side of things. And the more we can move to the eudaimonic side of things, that actually moves us more towards that full experience of well-being as opposed to the, that short-term experience of happiness. So, so back in sort of advice as a financial advisor for a long time, and um, it's all trying to, I, I naturally, if you put me in a, you know, uh, Clifton Strengths Finder, I'm like futuristic. I'm always thinking forward in the, that type of my personality, but that's not what everyone is, right? Everyone's got different strengths, et cetera. Um, so I'm thinking about this and it's trying to get clients to start. And that's naturally why people delay financial decisions to play for retirement, um, their health, you know, lots of things. People can't connect with their future self, I guess. Um, you know, is 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 that sort of a part of it? You know, people, you know, are so stuck in, oh, I can't imagine what I'm going to look like or feel like or what my life's going to be like five years' time, let alone when I'm going to be, you know, when I'm 60. Um, and, and that that bridging that, that that's actually potentially going to happen, you need to start planning for it now. Like, what's sort of the best ways, do you think, for people to get in that long-term thinking and because that's when they make the sacrifice, right? They say, look, okay, maybe in the short term, the pros and cons are pretty even. Like, if anything, they're actually a negative in the short term because I've got to live in an area maybe I don't want to live right now. I've got to pay a bigger mortgage. I've got to leave my friends. I've got to leave my family. I've got to make new friends. Um, and actually, it's actually from a cash flow point of view, I can't go on that holiday. Um, but And then, yeah, I've got a nice house, but I, I've nowhere, no one wants to come and visit me. But Longer term, it's maybe really heavily weighted, a much better decision. How do you suggest people to get in that mindset of their future self? Like, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, AI sort of imagery stuff at the moment. And, you know, that's like even just seeing a picture of yourself and it ages. I know uh, financial advisors used to use that a little bit. Have you seen what's some good ideas for people to get in that long-term thinking? What the one, one thing to even do is, is there's an exercise called best possible selves our best future selves, which is really where you just take some time and just write about your best possible future. Um, and it's, it's a simple exercise, but you just 
take some time and imagine yourself in five or 10 years in the future and write down what yourself looks like. And you just, it's, so it's, it's an imaginary exercise, but it's actually saying, this is what my life would look like as I'm living my best possible life. And it actually gets us out of the current life that we're actually in and is imagining this life that I'm actually living when I'm imagining my best possible self. And that moves us into the future. And actually, you know, in, in that case, then we can start to be imagining, you know, once we imagine that, then we can say, what are the steps that I need to take to actually get there? And that actually moves us to saying, well, yeah, I can buy that house because that would actually be moving me towards living that life that I actually want to be living. And what's your thoughts around like natural resilience, like um, that we, you know, as humans just adapt to whatever our circumstances are and we almost can be happy within any circumstances that we, so no matter what happens to our financial self, right, that, you know, our, our baseline happy would stay the same. So yeah, maybe we don't have the car, maybe we have the kids and maybe we struggle and maybe we have to, you know, be a bit tight with our shopping. But ultimately I'm still living the same sort of similar happy life because I'm just living on my set point. Um, and I'm getting just as much joy, feelings of joy in the small things. Maybe it's the sunrise, but I'm still, how do you feel about that? You know, is, is it all sort of meaningless a little bit because naturally you're just going back to your set point anyway. We, we do see that in the research. And so based on studies, we do see that. Um, so looking at the question of satisfaction with life. So how satisfied are you with your life? It, that studies have looked at people who have experienced a lot of, of trauma in their life, um, including things like uh, losing loved ones or injury and illness, and then really positive things in life, such as getting married, having kids, and other things that we ex ex expect as having really positive results, winning the lotto. Um, and what we see is the positive events create a short-term very boost in emotion in sort of satisfaction with life and the negative events create a very negative uh experience in life satisfaction but it returns over time to that sort of set point and um so what we see is that it that the negative does not have nearly as what what people expect is that the negative would have a huge sort of long-term consequence on satisfaction in life and that the positive would have a long-term, you know, if I just live the lo win lotto, that, you know, my life would be better forever, you know, and what we actually see, if anything, winning the lotto actually creates a lot of complications in life because all of a sudden people love you for your money. They don't love you for yourself, you know, and so if anything, it actually creates a lot of complications in your life that actually undermines well-being. Um, and, and I so, just watched the um, Whitney Houston movie last night and um, yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, dad's the loving father was well, probably not that situation, but then, you know, all of a sudden he's stealing from his daughter in the end, right? And it's like, and you see that all the stats with people who are successful sports people and, you know, lotto, et cetera, um, that the, the, they look back on their life. Some, a lot of them would say, I probably wish I never got the money, right? Um, because it, it, the damage has just been so prolific um, and they'd love to go back in time. Yeah. And if, if he, if we actually look at, so there's been some studies that have looked at people. So um, this comes from the Blue Zone studies that have looked at people who live very long lives. So um, centenarians uh, that have, you know, more people who live much longer lives than we'd expect. 
And what we see as the biggest things that impact their lives are people who have really good connections with other people um, and a, a huge sense of purpose for their lives. And so there's a real reason for why they live their lives. Um, and then there's things like diet and exercise and, you know, a good good environment and whatnot. whatnot. But but at, at the heart of it is being a part of a community, you know, and so we think about, you know, if we're buying property, you know, how can you become a part of the community that you're a part of? So it's not just buying a house, you're buying a house as part of a community um, and having a sense of purpose, which I think, you know, buying a property that this is giving you a sense of this is a purpose for my family and the community that I'm a part of, that that can actually be a huge part of supporting well-being. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first-home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. It's quite interesting. We're dealing with clients and there are some clients where location is like the primary driver and it's because of all those those networks and, and connections that they have. It's also, you know, there's a stop factor as well in the sense that I don't want to leave here because that's all, you know, there's, once again, it's complex, you know, because, you know, there might be a certain location they're living in that to leave that would feel like a backward step. So there's that. But there's also very much that, you know, this is where my, my people are, is where my community is where I belong, this is where I socialize, this is where my kids' networks are, et cetera, et cetera. But just back to your, you know, I'm sort of visualizing the, the different graphs, of, you know, that, that one-off negative or positive event that has an immediate rise or decrease in dopamine and then you've got this tapering off as as over time our state of being or our emotional state returns to the set point. Um, does it take longer to bounce back from the negatives, to return there from negatives on, on in the studies than a positive or vice versa, or is it roughly the same? It does take, actually, so the positive does come back down to baseline faster than the recovery from the negative. Yep. So we do think that the recovery from the negative does take longer in terms of the recovery time. And it does depend on the supports that are there. So the more supports that are there, the easier the recovery, but it does, it, you know, those hard times really are hard to recover from. And the more supports that are there, the easier the recovery actually is. Has there been any study on if someone has a major setback, um, some people's reaction is to be busy. I mean, I know for me personally, if I have a, a setback, I'm like, right, what can I do to fix it? What can I do about that? You know, and because I'm an action-oriented person and it's not always in my best mental, you know, the best for my mental health really, but, you know, that's the sort of way I'm wired. Um, and so I go and, all right, I'll go and buy a new home <laughs> or I'll go and get married. No, I wouldn't do that. But, I mean, you know, like I'll go and create a positive thing 
to offset the negative. I mean, I know I'm sort of going down a rabbit hole here, but can it help you get back to your set point faster? I mean, is that a credible thing to do to sort of pattern interrupt at that point? Or is we just still overcomplicating things? Well, in many ways, it's it's actually sort of it, it's it's a way of sort of deflecting the pain, and it's sort of a way of diffusing things in order to you know sort of keep busy, and sort of actually diffuse the pain so you don't actually have to deal with it. And in a lot of ways, it's actually a very a very healthy coping mechanism. Um, and for a lot of things, it can actually work very well. The the way it is not healthy is when there is some really deep pain that you actually need to actually face. And so, you know, so for a lot of things that actually works very well, you know, you can just actually just sort of diffuse it in terms of pouring yourself into other things. But when there's sort of sort of something deep that's there that you actually need to face, then there's um, sometimes um I remember when I was in uh, university, um, I, I, I was taking an abnormal psych course and the, the professor talked about when there's a lot of pain there, we try everything to go around the pain, but the, deep, the, the best way to do it is to actually face the pain. And so sometimes, sometimes it's, it's like this big mountain and we do everything to go around the mountain, but sometimes we actually have to face the mountain. Um, and so... For some things, actually, the best way to actually deal with it, as painful as it is, is to actually face it directly. Um, and so sometimes when there is something really painful there, as hard it, it, as it is, we actually need to face it directly. And that's with the love and support of others to actually, you know, deal with some of the deep issues that are there. So getting busy and, and you know, and, you know, I've seen people do this. This is one of the reasons why I ask because, you know, it's like, okay, I know what you're moving will solve my problem or, or you know what I mean? It's like, you know, this is, as you say, deflection, um, which is quite interesting. But I keep, I can't help but think about loss aversion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think also about when people miss out at auction and then they go and buy the very next week, I've called it the rebound property. You know, they've, they've just been dumped and so they run off with the next property they meet. Um, and, and, and I often worry, I think, oh my God, when you wake up from that hangover, you're not going to be real happy because you didn't even buy the right property, you know, but it does happen. Um, and sort of tied in with loss aversion, cause we, you know, we, we talk about, um, behavioral biases on this podcast a lot. And obviously we, we do understand that the, the, the fear of the pain of the loss is greater than the fear of the pain of. Oh, no, sorry, not the fear of the pain of the gain, our anticipation of the pleasure of the gain. So therefore, we will we'll err away from loss. How does that sort of feed into all this? So really with that is is sort of like it's it's constantly trying to pursue that dopamine hit, you know, and is so much afraid of losing that dopamine hit that it's actually, you know, instead of actually sitting in that discomfort, that it's actually pursuing that and actually, um, you know, it can it can create a lot of problems, actually, because then you're just buying property to actually fill that need that's actually there, as opposed to actually sitting in some of that discomfort to actually get to the better property that it, that is actually going to better fulfill your actual needs. So from a well-being perspective, from a well-being perspective, you're actually going to be better off to actually sit in some of the discomfort 
to actually get to the better property that's there. So well-being from a, a well-being perspective is actually at times sitting in discomfort in order to actually get the better outcome. So sometimes like, so oftentimes like well-being, oftentimes people think like it's just feeling good all the time, but that's actually not true. Well-being is actually at times sitting in discomfort so you actually get the better feeling uh, that comes out of that deeper level of well-being as opposed to just going after that good feeling. I think um, you've really nailed it. There's kind of hit the nail on the head for the whole episode, I guess. What, I think there's two parts. There's one, the investors. So we, we see a lot of people who have come to us and they haven't dealt with that pain, right? They've bought properties and there were lots of properties and maybe they're, part of them is just accruing, accruing because they're trying to, you know, just keep accruing. So that's maybe the hedonic part. But then it's also, they're not dealing with the pain, right? And they'll come to someone like me and they'll be like, uh, don't buy any more. Maybe you should be doing selling, right? You've bought all these duds, right? So it's the loss aversion that facing that pain head on is quite confronting. So they just, you know, should be right, mate. I'll just, you know, try to buy other properties. And I think the home ownership things are really interesting. One, I mean, Veronica and I, we really encourage people to think through the, you know, the longer term, the livability, how it suits their lifestyle, the negatives of living in that property versus that property and making sure it's the right fit for them. And um, I think a lot of buyers, you know, are focused on, you know, just getting into the market, et cetera, but they're not spending enough time thinking, well, I'm going to live in this house for, you know, 10, 15 years. You know, I really, because if it doesn't satisfy their, a, a level to their happiness score, let's say, then ultimately in a few years time, they're going to start picking up on those negatives and those negatives are going to start nagging in their brain, aren't they? And they're going to have that, that, that resentful, they're going to be like, well, maybe we should have waited or maybe we, but that's painful. So I'm just going to get stuck in this house that ultimately isn't satisfying what I really wanted. And I think that's all leads back to that first decision. Is that sort of where you think it links into to home buying is that we are focused? Yeah. Correct. hundred percent. So it, it just sort of like it, it's going after that. It, it's trying to fill that need that's there. And, and so it's just trying to fill that need. And so I buy this home. But then it it just gets under the skin and then you end up with all this resentment that's there that really undermines that sense of well-being as opposed to stepping back, sitting in some of that discomfort, but then ending up with the property that actually gives you that sense of deeper fulfillment, that eudaimonic sense of well-being that you're actually really happy with. And so it takes longer and it's there's pain involved with it. It's sitting in discomfort of saying like, oh wow, I didn't get it at the first first chance or whatever. But you actually end up with the, the the property that is actually the right one for you. And then you don't have the resentments there. And then you're actually really happy with the choices that you've made. I think the community part is something that um, you know, because I've read a lot about this stuff. I'm quite fascinated by, you know, for years in the financial advice space. Um and uh, the relationship element, right? The community, the connection to the community. A big part of that's being able to afford to live in a place and having a place that's actually suitable for your life. Um, then you've got this kid's schooling, you've got um, you know, access to family, access to work, et cetera. And so there's so many, it's, it's trying to balance all those elements, but then also then to find something, not where you can live today, but something that you can grow into the community. I think it you know, it's one of the reasons why people don't downsize from their house, right? Because they're so entrenched in that community with their neighbor, who's actually now a good friend too, you know, and they, they, they 
that sense of potentially upsetting relationships basically is the reason why they end up staying in the house, I guess. Is that because they matter more than ever to their happiness? Yep. And that's what we really see. One of the biggest contributors to well-being is that sense of community and those relationships with others. And so, you know, that sense of community and connection with others is absolutely critical to well-being. And so it keeps people in their homes. It, it connects people to others and is a core contributor to the decisions that we make about where we live. So this is interesting because there's so much, um, uh, I guess, you know, our governments, for instance, are trying to do things like uh, change stamp duty because they're trying to change the way people behave around their property. And they're using incentives, a typical economic sort of model of, you know, that we behave according to incentives. But then they don't, if they don't look at this behavioural side of things, it's just what they miss, you know, because a lot of people, we're talking about community, a lot of people don't want to downsize because they don't want to basically disrupt that. Um, and so you can give them all the incentives in the world <laughs> financially once they're at a certain point. Um, is it also around, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs as well? You know, this idea of, you know, the, there's what, how many, seven or eight or whatever in that triangle. Um, you know, you've got the bottom rung of, of the ladder is uh, the basic, you know, food, water, shelter, basically. And then the very top is self-actualization. Um, do you think that we sort of self-actualize ourselves sometimes into into a state of unhappiness? Like in the sense that I always looked at that and thought, oh, that's because, you know, we basically like our own personal guru by the time we get to the top of the triangle. But I also wonder about how much of this, our pursuit for happiness is, is a first world problem. You know, I, I wonder if it's a luxury that we have because we're in an affluent society. It is a luxury that we have as an affluent society, but at the same time, we're undermining all of that because one of our very basic needs, that connection with others is completely undermined. So we're, as a society, we're more connected than other, but we're completely alone, you know? And so the, the second need is a sense of belonging with others. And so we're more connected with than others, but then people are completely alone and disconnected with one another. And so it's a first world problem, but it's a, it's a problem that we actually have. And so, you know, a huge driver of problems that we have is that people feel very alone and disconnected. And so we're not even getting to the higher needs because that very second need of connecting with other is completely undermined. And that's that's critical. And when we're thinking about the homes that we have and the, the communities that we're living in, that's something that we really need to be be thinking about is how can we be connecting with the neighbors that are around us? How can we be buying homes that we're going to be connecting with our neighbors and being a part of the communities that we're within, that we're not just buying homes, we're buying homes within communities because that's going to be criti critical to every other need that, that we have. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, I think it's Gallup. I'm not sure, but they, you know, they they did some research um around sort of well being, right? I think they've, they've written books. I've read a book on it before. And, um, you know, one of their research was that you know if you earned a certain income, then your happiness was at you know pretty much peak, and then it was a law of diminishing value, right? Like, so if your income was ninety thousand, I think it was, you've got ninety eight percent of your happiness you need because you've can satisfy most of your things, and then, but if your income went to two fifty or three hundred or a million. You don't get this, you know, exponential happiness. Um, but then there's been reports recently that are sort of counter, I have sort of kind of argued that against that. Um, what's your sort of take on 
you know, the financial aspect, because you said community is really important in terms of well-being, right? So financial stability or financial success, how important is that when you compare it to other things like health or, you know, uh, purpose or, you know, doing something that's really giving you that reward? Like, how is, is it really not as big as people ultimately expect? Because they get these short-term hits, but then they, they go back to their baseline. So they get this new car, the house, or and it doesn't really... It's not going to get you any much happier, if that sort of makes sense. Correct. So what 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 we see is the the financial element matters to a certain point. So if you're living in poverty, then finances make a huge difference. So you know if you don't have your basic needs covered, then that that's a huge issue. So you need to have your your basic needs covered. But beyond that then money does not make much of a difference. And that actually a lot of the people that have a lot of money are very unhappy. They they are burning through relationships. They are not getting their needs met. They're, you know, they're they have all they have all the money they need and they are incredibly unhappy. They it's, they don't uh, the lives. I often say that happiness sorry, money doesn't buy happiness, but lack of it sure can make you unhappy. <laughs> um on that though, you know, like have there been studies, and I'm assuming that there's studies around the life stage, you know, so obviously, you know, your home and home require housing requirements are uh, will differ according to where you are in your life stage. So do you think that there's a, a there's the, the home itself or or owning a home or or leave even just secure rental um, tenure, making a home, I should say, let's say making a home, uh, does it, become more important at different life stages do you think or is it fairly standard like a fairly static I, I think it does become more important so there's there's sort of like you know there's there's leaving home to begin with and we are seeing that extending out so young people are staying with their parents much longer so that's that sort of we, we have seen a real shift where it used to be young people left home at a much earlier age. We're seeing young people staying at home much longer um, than in the past. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, but there is sort of a benefit of seeing young people go out and starting to rent and then starting to own homes. Um, but you do see sort of that sense of accomplishment and achievement coming around owning a home, starting your life on your own and whatnot. Um, and then we see different trends as, as you go on to sort of, you know, different home ownership. And then actually you see downsizing as you get later in life. Um, and so you see different trends as you go across the life stage and sort of the needs that you have at different stages of life. Because some people, when they're downsizing, you know, I've I've dealt with many people over the years, and some see it as a real negative thing, and other people actually see it as a positive thing. So it's really interesting, sort of back to that natural state, I guess, as to how somebody might view that. Yeah, and how long they leave it. I think a lot of it depends on the values that people have. So, and how much are they sort of like the element of materialism? And how much they value materialism. So some people really value sort of those material that they really value materialism. And so in that case, downsizing is very much a negative because then I have to get rid of things. Whereas others actually don't value materialism. And so downsizing is actually a really positive thing because I'm actually getting rid of these things and I'm not holding on to things. And so 
that's where our values really intersect with our sense of well-being in terms of our lifestyle choices. Peggy, I, don't, I think in terms of like homes, right? So there's a rising co-living, right? Where people are sharing living spaces, you know, some cultures around the happiest countries in the world, right? The Danes and the, the Scandinavians, right? Um, co-living multi-generational families, et cetera. I think in, you know, places like Australia, we've we live in, you know, individual apartments within a building, right? And, you know, we're all got our own doors and no one knows each other on their own floors and in houses and communities, we've all got big fences. And we like, do you think that we've almost designed our society, the property market, let's say, that doesn't link into ultimate wellbeing? Because, you know, it, if anything, we shouldn't have fences, right? We shouldn't have these big privacy. We shouldn't be having, um, you know, all going into our separate little apartments when you'll never bump into anyone besides maybe in the lift and you won't say hello. Like, do you think that that's a, a key problem that we're not identifying and that, you know, there'll constantly be lead to inadequacy around our housing decisions because we're obviously striving for the wrong type of result? Yep. So we've seen a real shift in terms of like how our housing looks. So in the past, it was like you'd have families living together. So you would actually have multiple generations that are all influencing one another. You have this cohabitation and whatnot. And now we've shifted to, you know, individual peoples, lots of singles. You have the apartments where everyone's living on their own without this interaction with one another. And we, at the same time, we've seen a, a rises in loneliness. We've seen rises in mental illness. And so there's, you know, this is all that we're, we're seeing reasons for these trends and whatnot. And so a lot in many ways, the design of our living situations are paralleling our mental, our mental illness trend. Yeah. And do you think that's the where it's too late to unwind a little bit? I mean, we had a placemaker come on. Um, I totally forget who that was. We had a whole um, conversation around the importance of councils and governments and reactivating you know, the CBDs or reactivating parks, et cetera. And do you think that this is where, you know, it's it's almost got to be a part council, you know, part government where they, they say, what does this really community stand for? How do we get this community better connected? And um, rather than, you know, a thousand properties in this community that just pay us rates. I, I think it needs to be community action. And I, I think there's a lot more that we could be doing to actually be redesigning our living situations i think how are you know I, I think there's a lot that's being done this is actually separating people more and more as opposed to actually moving more towards creating community and we know how important those social connections are and i think there's a lot that's actually pushing us more towards isolation which is actually really problematic and undermines well-being yeah i think um, we're doing a big red on a few years which is sort of planning in the front garden and I've chatted to a few architects and I just really like the idea. I've seen some gardens that, you know, you see them around new Veronica actually in the inner West. It's like, it's almost like, Hey, this is public space. It's my, it's my garden. Right. But it's at the front of my house. But my attitude is, and I'm just putting a big fence up and a big hedge and see you later guys. I'm going to my den. It's almost like, can I re transform this space to connect to the community? Can I have a, a window at the front that actually people can see in? Do I have like places to sit? Do I, um, and, you know, the passerbys will connect with you as a house. You know, do you think that that's sort of a a way of people to, you know, maybe flip the idea of home ownership is actually no, like you were saying, I actually need to connect. I, I can't just go and hide away. Ultimately, my happiness it will be become through 
being better connected to the people around me? I, I think it's a way to connect and I think it's something that draws people in. I, I think we see it whenever there are public spaces like it that people come to it where people are longing for it and that that's exactly what we need to actually reconnect people together. And, and I, I think people are longing for it and that's what we need in our communities. Well, maybe COVID gave us that for that minute, right? You didn't see anyone, so you said hello to someone when you walked past them. But, you know, have we just gone back to, you know, pre-2019, right, where it, we all went back to ourselves. So we didn't care about the people around us. Do you think that that's, the, the, you know, one of the biggest challenges and one of the positives that COVID sort of shown a, lot, shown a light yeah. on? I, I think it's, a, you know, like COVID gave us a chance, like we started actually interacting with each other and caring for each other. And I think that's something that we actually need to carry on and actually say, you know, we started really connecting with each other locally. And I think that's something that we see the research, how important those connections are in terms of supporting well-being. And that's something that we individually can each take action. You know, when we walk by each other, say hello to each other, look each other in the eye. Those are those little pieces of connection that we can be creating connection in our community. And that is incredibly important for our own well-being and the well-being of others around us. I think that what you're talking about there is such a classy example of the well, hedonic adaptation though, isn't it? It's like, you know, during COVID, we did things differently. And then basically when the threat has been removed, uh, not that saying COVID has been removed to people, but the threat has been removed, then we all go back to our, you know, business as usual. We'd rather isolate. And it's actually for myself personally, I actually found myself becoming a bit of a hermit and and I'm quite outgoing. And um, so I've actually put in place sort of post-COVID actually some sort of social um, cohesion, you know, uh, efforts, if you like. I've got two WhatsApp groups going now, which are fantastic, you know, actually connecting people that and, – and sort of like the six degrees of separation thing and connecting people as well that wouldn't have known each other. And and, and then that, that sort of springboards something else. Some, it's all creating something different. And, but that has taken a conscious decision and an action, you know, and I guess that's what we all need to do. But it's interesting. We, we interviewed Jeremy McLeod, um, some weeks back. We'll have to put the links to the, the episodes we're mentioning here, uh, in, uh, and he's, uh, a director of Breathe, um, architecture practice in Melbourne, but also one of the co-founders of the Nightingale Housing Project, which is, and a big part of that, that those projects is about community and connection. Um, so it is, you know, but it's still not in the mainstream, is it? It's still in the margins here. And yet, like you say, it's a core need of ours. And yet we're not very good at really, I guess, of um, prioritising it in many ways. So um, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm just wondering if you have an example of a property Dumbo for us. So this is just something that uh, a lesson we can all learn through a story of somebody may have done around property. Do you have an example for us? Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll give a story of my own property. So um, during during COVID, they set up a, a nice community garden. Um, and it was really interesting in terms of coordinating it off during COVID to be like, we can't actually go in there because of COVID. Um, but then people kept going in there anyways in order to actually uh, care for the garden. And the garden is flourishing in terms of creating a sense of connection. And so there's sort of like this sense of, of as we've talked about here, um, this sense of creating a little bit of connection around creating a garden and connection between each other. And we have no idea who goes in there and who does things. 
but it's a way of creating connection and community within a community of apartments where people don't know each other, people don't connect with each other, but it's within a community where, or it's it's through a garden that people actually create com- com- con- connection within a garden. Um, and so I think that's a perfect example of through little ways how we can actually be creating connection within these individual apartment areas that do not create much connection, but there are those little ways that we can create connection through the little things that we do within our community. So we're going to take the Dumbo from that as any building that has the potential to do that that hasn't yet. Any people that live in a building that could have done that that haven't, here's your opportunity. It doesn't have to take lockdowns. It doesn't take much space. It's just a little bit of space a little bit of time and a little bit of connection and we can all create connection through it. Could just be a herb herb garden with a lime tree. Well, yeah, and ultimately it's actually great for property values, right? So if you think about, um, not that I'm always thinking about the money side, but it is actually, you know, if people are investing in a garden, right, they're investing in their homes, they're investing in their community, they're going to live in those properties longer. So less of them are going to come on the market. People are going to be more attracted to live in those properties because they've heard about the community and they know how, and, and so places that obviously give that lifestyle benefit is actually also then tangible to the demand and supply metrics of, of things. And so, um, I, that's, if you, even if you're doing it for financial reasons, um, you should be encouraging your building to, to connect more, right. To, to have a better community. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of other reasons that are much bigger. So thanks so much for coming on Peggy. This is an interesting chat that, um, will be an age old problem. I feel, you know, if you come back in 10 years time, we'll still be dealing with the, you know, people you know, getting better at managing their own well-being. So thanks, Peggy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.